Good morning, everybody. It is Daniel Werman coming to you live from the Dream Imaginate Sports Studios. It is 9 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 6 a.m. West Coast wake-up call in all time zones, in between and around the world. Today is a day of celebration as our U.S. women's national team won their fourth World Cup yesterday in France with a 2-0 victory over the Netherlands. It was a back-and-forth affair. Um, First half uh, and into the second half, the U.S. were having all kinds of issues. Getting on the score... Uh, on the scoreboard, it was uh, a lot of close chances. Goalkeeper for the Netherlands uh, had a fantastic match and uh, was doing really well to keep them out. The the Dutch had a very good tactical plan. They were playing a four one, excuse me, a four four one one. So they had a they had two banks of four, and they were willing to to sit back and play a little counter attack and try to absorb. Uh, the U.S.'s pressure, especially in the beginning of the game. We've been talking in in the lead-up to the final that the U.S. women's national team's plan A is to come out in the first 15 to 20 minutes and try to swarm you, overwhelm you with energy, with attack, and and come at you. They, They want to come and boss you in the first 15 to 20 minutes and be very, very, very aggressive. And the Netherlands, learning from the, the previous two matches where what, what I felt was the key for the U.S.'s US uh, success to, to advance past France and then again against England was to score early. In both games, France and England were unable to prevent that from happening. And, and so both both the US, uh, U.S. France and U.S. England matches, the U.S. Women's National Team were able to get out on the front foot, go in and attack, 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 and 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 get an early goal, and and it always seems to settle this team down and and allow them to really play and and come at you and really try to force you to come at them, which is what they want. They they really would prefer not to have the ball as much as I would like them to have it. Uh, the, the plan seems to be more of let's rely on athleticism, quick attack, quick counterattack, and, and let's, let's run at people uh, rather than allowing the ball to do the work as much. And, and so that, that plan is, is what sets up the U.S. women's national team in, in the way that they want to play. That's how they want to come at you. That's how they want to approach the game. And and coming into this this final, the Dutch learning from the English game, from the French game against the U.S. women's national team, decided to forego their 4-3-3 formation. And instead of trying to possess in the beginning of the match – we want to try to sit and absorb and counterattack, almost force the U.S. to play out of their comfort zone. Let's give them the ball, and let's try to absorb and, and see what we can do to neutralize their attack, and it was successful. Um, the U.S. did have chances in the first half, but were unable to get on the score. And and so we go into half nil-nil, and the game is carrying on. And, it, and, it, and at this point, in about the 60th minute or so, it, up until this point, it looks like... 
it's going to be decided as a, as a one-goal game. Now, I predicted a 2-1 U.S. win on Friday and Friday show, um, but it was looking like it was going to be a 1-0 victory or possibly penalties if the Netherlands could hold that line, if they could hold uh, that effort to, to make it a, a one goal, one nil in either direction game. It, it seemed to be that was going to be their game plan. We're going to play for one. We are going to to work together to get to that one nil victory. And the plan was working up until the 60th minute. And there was, I would call it a controversial penalty. Others may disagree. And, and, and when I'm watching a game, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to look at things not just as a fan of the U.S. Women's National Team, but also of the moment of the call. You know, is it right? Not just it's it's for the U.S., so it's got to be good kind of thing. I was not trying to just wear rose-colored glasses and just look at the game from that perspective. And in that moment where Alex Morgan was deemed by VAR, not the referee, he was right there, but by VAR that she, you know, had been fouled in the box. By the letter of the law, was it a foul? Yes, but I've seen that play on so many times. The both were just going for a ball. I, I view it as incidental contact. The the ball had already been misplayed by Morgan. Uh, she had missed the ball. It had come off of her stomach, chest, somewhere in that area, and was going, going out of bounds, um, and... The Dutch defender at the same time was, that was going for the ball uh, didn't get the ball and, you know, caught her arm uh, as she was kind of coming around trying to, to knock the ball out. I didn't feel like it was worthy of a penalty call. And certainly in a final when it's nil-nil in the 60th minute, um, you you have to know when you make that call that it's probably going to be the decisive call of the match. And... Um, as a as a referee, you know I wouldn't want that to be. I wouldn't want to be the one that makes that call um, to basically pick the U.S. to win. Now, obviously, they had to convert the penalty kick, and uh, and, and they did. But I, I just I felt like it was one of those where it was like you know it was incidental contact. Um, you know, if it's outside the box, you know maybe I give a free kick, but. I didn't feel like it was it was as clear cut and dramatic as Alex Morgan sold it to be. I also didn't feel like it was a clear cut penalty um, in lifetime nor afterwards. But you know, it is what it is. I I totally understand why it was called because by the letter of the law, you you know, you can definitely say, does it meet the criteria to be called a foul? Yes. Does it meet the criteria to be called a foul in the box? Yes. I just didn't feel like it was an egregious call. It wasn't going to change that play. In other words, the ball had already come in. Alex Morgan had missed play. She had misplayed the ball, and it was going out of bounds. So that foul call didn't change that play. Alex Morgan was not going to get to the ball it was going out. The contact was not what I would deem, you know, so egregious that with the ball going out of bounds, she should get, re- you know, a reward. 
for getting fouled like that. I, I just didn't feel that. So that's the reason why I felt that way. But I understand why the call was made. And, um, you know, Megan Rapino, who again did not have a good game in the run of play, um, and, and, you know, pretty much was unable to do much of anything on the field. Um, and much, much of the tournament in the knockout rounds, especially, she, you know, you could see that, that she just didn't have the ability to break people down the way she had done in the past. And she was struggling with the ball and without the ball. Um, the, the, those who, who were talking about how Megan Rubino had this amazing tournament, I, I just I completely disagree with that assessment. Um, and, and the numbers actually back that up. But she didn't have a great tournament, especially in the run of play. So, you know, she wins the golden boot and she wins the best player of the tournament. I don't think she deserved either. Most of her goals came from penalty kicks. And of those penalty kicks, she was not involved in, in any of them leading up to the penalty kick. She was just the designated penalty kick taker. And um, now, major credit to her in this regard. Under the pressure, all eyes of the world watching you convert your kicks. Kudos to her. I am not at all disparaging her her tenacity, her competitive drive, her mental toughness, etc. Like she's a baller. Um, there's no doubt about it. I just felt like that that in the run of play, if you're watching 90 minutes, she was not having a major influence on the game. Uh, positively, and I think at times she was hurting the team, felt the team was much better with Kristen Press on the field. She provided a lot more energy, and and because, because the way Jill Ellis sets this team up to play, I think it, it actually hurts players like Carly Lloyd and Megan Rapino, who I think in a different system could be very, very effective. Um, in a system where you are relying on running at teams and and not using the ball to wear teams down, but instead we're going to wear you down by trying to turn this into a, a very forward, quick attack, counterattack type of game. I felt like, you know, players like Carly Lloyd, players like Megan Rapino, they're not able to, to kind of do that game very well anymore for a long amount of time. So I felt like both of them should have been super subs in the way that Carly Lloyd was for the tournament. And I felt like Kristen Press should have been getting the starts because she, when she would come in, she would be causing havoc all along the front line, was able to drop in in midfield and help without the ball, etc. Felt like it was just a better fit for this team. Um, but absolute tip of the hat credit to Megan Rapino. She did what she had to do in the moment she had to do them. And, and the one thing that, that you can say when you look at the stats for her in this World Cup, she wasn't great from the run of, the, run of play. For, for big chunks of time, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't going well for her. But, and this is the big but, and this is what you need from your best players. No matter what sport you're watching, this is what you need from your best players in the big moments. And that is she stepped up and converted free kicks, penalty kicks, etc. consistently. And 
Um, and, and so for that absolute tip of the hat, um, she got him on the score line yesterday, got him up 1-0, and then I think the best player on this U.S. women's national team and watching watching this tournament, um, I think I think she's the best player by a, mar- a wide margin is Rose Lavelle. Um, there are some other absolutely skilled players on this team. Tobin Heath, I love Lindsey Horan, and there you have you have some of the best players in the world on this team. But Rose Lavelle is just different on the field. Watch her play. Watch her play in midfield. Uh, the way she runs at people, the way she takes people on one v one, the way she plays in her teammates. And then for her to come right down the middle yesterday, being up 1-0, Netherlands had to go for it. And that played right into the U.S. hand. I knew the moment that re- that the penalty kick was was scored, that the U.S. were about to score at least another goal. Just knowing that the Netherlands were going to have to come out, that was going to give the U.S. the opportunity to play the game that they want to play, which is to run at you. And... Um, they go at 1-0. Great tackle by um, Dunn out on the left flank. Wins the ball. Play They, they play it across and get it in into Rose, and she brings it right up the middle and was able to run, <coughs> excuse me, right after, uh, right at the, the back line and um, gets right top of the 18 and uh, pulls off a great shot. And scores and 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 the thing I love about Rose Lavelle and her game is there's there's such passion when she scores and just that kind of goes to her knees kind of double fist pump just really ecstatic. It's great to watch her play, uh, silky smooth out there on the field, and I, I thought she was incredible. And uh, that was the second goal, and that was it. I mean, there was no way after you know one nil. The Netherlands, you know, could have tried, you know, maybe gotten a, an equalizer. At 2-0, it was over. There was no way they were coming back. Um, and uh, and that was the game. 2-0, and uh, kudos to the ladies. Parade in New York on Wednesday, and they deserve all of the plaudits and all of the appraise coming their way. Um they have done uh, done a, a, a fantastic job this entire World Cup. And the one thing I will say about this team, one final thing here, no team in the world, no team in the world has had more expectations of them and has had more stuff said about them and also have said things about themselves than this U.S. Women's National Team, and they lived up to the pressure, they lived up to the hype, they played their game, and they executed their game plan, and they won the World Cup. This team, I've been saying it throughout the entire tournament, they are the best front-running team in the world. I think in any sport. They are the best, men or women. They have high expectations of themselves. They have high expectations that, that have been placed on them from people around the world. And, and they continued to rise above or, or at least reach the level of those expectations 
which was to win the World Cup. And they did it. And they did it going through some of the best teams in the world in Europe to get there and to win it against the European champions. And, you know, although I, I felt that the penalty call was was, was I, I wish we would have won in, in open play uh, and, and, and reversed those two moments. But, uh, you know, it is what it is. They they rose to the challenge. They have they have uh, every reason to celebrate and be proud of their effort and their work. And we are uh, as well. And and the big key here at the end uh, of the game were chants from the crowd of equal pay, equal pay instead of USA, equal pay. These women's national team players deserve equal treatment from the United States Soccer Federation. Carlos Cordero, the U.S. Soccer Board, you all need to step up and quit hiding behind excuses and collective bargaining agreements. There, there, There is such a thing in this world as right and wrong and doing the right thing, and all of you on the U.S. Soccer Board need to do the right thing and rip up that CBA and give those ladies the treatment they deserve. That means the same airfare, the same hotel treatment, everything that the men's national team get, bonus structure, etc. And if that means at the end of the day that they both have the same bonus structure, the same treatment, etc., and because the U.S. women's national team are more successful on the field, which they are, than their male counterparts, and that means they earn more money, so be it. They've earned it. They deserve it. It's time for you to pay up. All of America is watching. Our eyes are on you. You need to do the right thing and treat these ladies with the respect, the dignity, and the honor that they deserve. Give them the equal opportunity to earn as much or more than their male counterparts and be treated the same in terms of training environments, uh, field access, planes, per diems, the whole gamut. They need to be treated equally. And if that means the women's national team earns more than the men, then so be it. They deserve it. They've obviously earned it on the field. And uh, and we should be doing nothing but applauding their efforts and rewarding those results. Our sponsor this half hour is Ducktick Brand. Ducktick Brand, D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com. Go there and order uh, your journals, your soccer coaching notebooks. If you're a player, goalkeeper, whatever, they have really good products. Use promo code DWSHOW to get 10% off your order at ductickbrand.com. We'll be right back after this.
Welcome back to the show. Thanks for tuning in this Monday morning, July the 8th. We are pleased to be joined by Colin McComb. He is the program director for Beekman Wolves. Colin, welcome to the show. How are you this morning? I'm great. Uh, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Um, you and I met uh, a couple years ago on uh, a trip to uh, to Holland and um got to, to know each other over for those couple weeks and uh, in in talking about you know aspirations and ambitions and innovations and you know American soccer global soccer uh, all of that and um, continue to, to, to stay in touch and uh, and follow your work and in the work that you are doing for for the audience where are you based out of and in Beekman Wolves, what what is that as a project, as an organization? Yeah, sure. So, uh, so we're based out of uh, out of Beekman, New York, which is um, about ninety miles as the crow flies uh, north of New York City in the, in the Hudson Valley. Um, we're kind of a, a bedroom community of um, of New York City. A lot of people uh, commuting back and forth, but it's a about two hour round tri- uh, two hours direct into New York City by train. Um, we're pretty rural. Other than that, uh, dairy farms, apple orchards, um, and um, uh, you know just a small community here. Um, so Wolves is uh, Beekman Wolves. We're organized through a town club um, here, Beekman uh, Soccer Club. Um, and uh, what we tried to do is put together a program that allowed um, some of the boys in the, in the local area to play at, at, a, at a high level. Um, and, uh, you know, our, our closest DA program is, you know, at least an hour, uh, 15, hour and 20 minutes uh, one way um, by, by car. Uh, and we found that we had a, a bunch of kids uh, here that were, you know, trying to either uh, play at, um, at at different clubs 40, 45 minutes away, or you know, uh, making a DA program and then and then commuting with that with that round trip four times a week, and then of course you, you know for games going even further, you know, four hours uh, sometimes to to a match, uh, th- things like that. So you know, we just looked at it and said, there's got to be a better way. We got to be able to do something locally here. Uh, to allow these kids to, you know, to, to play and train together um, and just capitalize on all that wasted time, you know, set up in the car. So uh, we started with two teams. We've, I've got a, um, I've got a U, um, well, it'll be U16 uh, this fall and then a U13 team. Um, started small because uh, also we, um, excuse me, raise, uh, raise monies, um so that uh, so that the parents and the players don't 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 get saddled with the cost of the of the program, um, and so our focus is on uh, quality, not not quantity of players to uh, to support the cost that uh, that it takes to run a program like we have. Um, yeah, so that's basically what we're doing, um, and uh, I'm really glad to be able to have a platform to talk about it a little bit. Thanks, Daniel. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so I have a, a couple things. Uh, number one, the travel uh, time that the players and families were, were facing in the past before your program existed. Um, were, were parents finding that challenging? Were they doing it willingly or were they wanting something different? And, and what were the, play, the players themselves? 
were were they excited about having to drive an hour to to practice one way uh, four days a week? You know what 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 were those conversations like uh, when you were looking at starting this program? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think you have some really motivated kids um, and and parents that are trying to support their kids and what their dreams uh, are. Right, so. You know, I, I, I had uh, worked with a lot of these kids over the years since they were, you know, five, six, seven years old. Um, and, you know, they watch, they watch, um, you know, the, the global game. Uh, they, they, they follow uh, teams uh, and, uh, and have aspirations. And they, they start saying, hey, I, I, wanna, I want a chance to be like what I see on TV. And that's, that's you know, more or less Bundesliga teams, La Liga teams. Um, you know, Premier League teams, you, you know, less about uh, I want to play in the MLS, right? And so, you know, they're they're chasing these dreams um, that they that they have, um, and they're looking for pathways. And so, you're you're constantly looking for you know how can I compete at the highest level? Um, and then U.S. U.S. Uh, Soccer came out with this with the with the DA program, um, and uh, we you know we just we just don't have anything that's reasonably close nearby, and I think that that probably is the standard for you know the best level of of youth soccer uh, in in the U.S. Most most of the um, you know top players are playing there, right? But it also meant this investment of you know an hour and a half one way drive, right. Uh, to, to go in and, and play in those programs. Um, so we started talking about this with parents and, you know, the kids are gung ho at first, but, uh, I have, um, you know, players now that are coming back from DA programs and saying, man, it's just a burnout. Like I, we can't sustain, um, three hours a night and, um, you know, being a sophomore in, in high school, uh, and, and preparing, uh, for, you know, PSATs and regents exams here and, and AP classes, right? We can't, we can't do both of those things. Uh, and, you know, my son is just, uh, burning out. I should, I should point out too, Daniel, that, uh, um, right now I, I have a, I have a boys focus program. So it's two, it's two boys teams. Uh, so everything that I'm, I'm talking about is, you know, around, uh, you know, boys programs. Um, so, you know, I, that's, that's the main thing. Uh, yeah, yes, definitely. There's the ambition and the eagerness to go, you know, put in that time to, to drive. I've had people look at moving to be closer to a DA program, renting a temporary housing, all those types of things. And it, and it, you know, came back to, why invest that time and capital when, when we can train, and get the same level of, uh, of, you know, players together, uh, closer to home. Uh, so my, you know, the radius that, uh, that my teams are coming from is, you know, really like a 15 mile radius, um, where, you know, I've been able to get those boys together. Um, we're not able to compete directly with, uh, with DA programs, but we've, um, we've gotten ourselves into a U.S. club promotion relegation system um, here that has allowed us to play um, in their division one premier league. And then from that division one premier league, we've been able to be promoted to the national premier league, um, you know, which, which affords us a 
know, pretty high level of play. So, yeah. So in, in the league that you're, you're playing in, um, how far are you having to travel for those matches, uh, on a weekend? Yeah. Uh, upwards of, of, um, an hour and a half, two hours. Um, we've got a traffic situation here in the New York city area that, you know, basically I've got to go South into the city and then throughout into long Island. And there's a choke point getting out into long Island. So, you know, miles wide, uh, wise, it, it's probably not that far. It's probably about, you know, 80 miles, 90 miles. Um, but, uh, it can take upwards of two hours to get to a match. Um, so yeah, that's, that's still a challenge, uh, finding, finding quality matches, uh, has been a challenge for us. Um, and, uh, yeah, we could go about two hours, but still at the same time, if, uh, if I was to get to say the, the, the Red Bulls, um, and, uh, you know, their, their facilities in Harrison, New Jersey are at least, uh, two hours and 15, two hours and 20 minutes from, uh, from where we are here. So you'd be going there for training. And then, you know, from there, you could be going to a match uh, in D.C., which is another six hours. Um, you know, so you're talking eight, ten hours one way. Um, you know, if I was if we were competing, you know, there. So, um, you know, look, when you're looking at travel time for a match, you know, that's a Saturday versus every day. Right. So if it's an hour and a half, two hours, I've got to get to a match on a Saturday or a Sunday versus Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you know, um, I would make that trade. Right. Instead of five, five, six days a week, I'm going once um, to, to a game versus I'm able to train locally, um, which, which is, is the biggest you know issue when you're looking at time and. And, and that is a day, day-to-day basis, homework, um, you know, dinner schedules, work schedules, et cetera. With, with your players and your program and, and the work that you try to do, um, how have you gone about trying to cultivate a higher level of training in a, in a training environment for your players? Um, is that been, you know, doing what other clubs do and, and, or has that been kind of looking to Europe and bringing in coaches and, and, and specifically for your program, how have you handled that piece of the training environment for the players? Yeah. So uh, let me explain the program, what, what we've had, what we've done, because we've taken all that time that was, that was wasted time and we've, we've built a, a you know, pretty solid program uh, with it. So we run 11 months, um, and uh, in the in the Northeast in New York here we have um, we have two seasons separated by about five month break uh, due to weather. So we have a we have a fall season uh, that's outdoor soccer, and we have a spring season that's separated by about five five months. Uh, you know November uh, through through March. Um, so we go we we start in um, in, in August. Uh, we focus on on soccer. Uh, we practice four times a week plus games. Um, our, we, we use um, a Huddle platform to to video the games, provide uh, player analysis and feedback. Um, we've incorporated uh, technology to allow 
the players to give um, sub- subjective um, feedback on, you know, what they're seeing in training, how they feel, uh, stress levels, um, you, you know, injuries, um, you, you know, all that. We, we use a, a, an app um, uh, to gather that, that information and data. Um, we have sit-down sessions to review uh, uh, games and, and sessions, um, and that's that's through through soccer. Then we hit uh, a period of time that traditionally here would be kind of supplemental training time throughout the winter. Um, we don't, you know, and it, you know a lot of teams locally here would do indoor leagues that are, you know, whatever, you know, eight v eight on turf fields. We didn't see a lot of value on uh, in that, so we switched to a full futsal um, uh, program. Lucky enough to have a, um, a U.S. Uh, youth national coach uh, who's only two miles away from uh, from, from us here, so uh, he works with us um, throughout the entire winter. Uh, and basically, we take a roster of 18 and we'll break into two nine nine man teams. Um, and uh, we compete at a pretty high level with futsal. That that allows us to get a lot of technical training uh, in in uh, in in basically small small groups and small environments. Um, you know, so we don't have to rent out large facilities um, and continue to play at a high level of competition. Um, we travel to our you know, our regional U.S. youth futsal regional uh, competitions in Boston and and down in Philadelphia. Um, and then we come back into the spring uh, and we focused on on soccer again through, you know, basically middle of uh, middle of June. We're not using tournaments the way that uh, that most teams use tournaments. Um, you know, most teams are looking to compete in tournaments to amass you know, got soccer points and look at their rankings. Basically we're using tournaments, uh, the way that, um, European teams use it, uh, preseason readiness, um, you know, lots of, lots of little matches, uh, just to basically get back in shape and, uh, and, and work as a team again. So we'll hit a bunch of tournaments in early March and we'll head South, uh, to, to hit those tournaments, um, prepare ourselves for, uh, for the season, um, and uh, and and again, preseason in um, you know in in the late summer, uh, we'll head north uh, for some cooler weather uh, and prepare ourselves uh, for our preseason. Um, so that's that's kind of our, what what our you know our overall program is. Um, you, you hit the nail on the head that coaching is uh, is a very important. Um, you know, a part of that. And so what we've been doing is, um, of, of having a quality program, what we've been doing is, uh, is, uh, you know, allowing coaches to come in, uh, from overseas and work with the, work with the boys. Um, we had a, uh, UEFA B coach from Holland that, uh, worked with them, uh, last year. Uh, and they come in for a short period of time and, uh, and, and train the boys, uh, basically it lines up nicely, um, that for, you know, they can come in for three months and then leave and then come in for three months again, um, you, you know, in, in the spring. So, um, that's, you know, having a robust program where the focus is on overall development of the team and the players, um, was, 
the one of the most paramount things that uh, that we wanted to do. Secondly, was okay, supplement that programming with high level coaching, um, and uh, we thought it was important to tap into coaches from with experience from outside of the United States, just because they have different perspectives on the game, different philosophies, uh, just different viewpoints that. I think it was important to uh, to expose the boys to, um, you know, some of that was to do with just tactically how they saw the game. Um, uh, and and some of it was the, you know, I'll just call it the freshness of of their view of the game. Um, you, you know, we've got 21, 22 year old uh, UEFA uh, B coaches have, I think, a little bit different view of the game than a, um, you know, a, a coach that may have a, uh, a USC or B license here in the U.S., but, you know, they're uh, 50 years old and, and um, you know, their major uh, playing came from, you know, playing in, uh, you know, maybe Division One or Division II uh, NCAA soccer in the seventies. Right. So it's just a different perspective of the, of the game, uh, and a fresher perspective of, um, you know, what, uh, what the modern game is. So with the, with the program, your, your futsal program is basically running for about three months, uh, sandwiched in between a fall three month outdoor and a spring outdoor season. Um, for for you all and then uh what are you looking at in terms of uh during the year or and or during the summer when it comes to any overseas type of of action trips etc is that part of your programming as well yeah so again the genesis of everything that we're doing was kids kids 12 13 14 year olds saying I want a pathway to be a pro or to play in college, right? So um, those two things are very complementary, is what what I've I've found, you know. Uh, and you know, when I was looking for those pathways, Daniel, it, it became you know very obvious that the pathway to a a pro um, you know contract is not necessarily through the United States. Um, I think there's 75, uh, you know, quote unquote pro teams in the United States. If you take the three, three levels of professional play that we have here, you compare that to, um, you know, the number of clubs and teams in say Germany. Um, I did a quick, uh, search, uh, before, and there was 25,000 clubs in Germany. Now, when your listeners, think about clubs, uh, you know, it will be the same as my parents, as we, as I do parent education with, with folks, we, we think of youth soccer clubs. We, we you know, if, if you, if some, if you start talking to somebody in the U S about youth soccer or, or soccer in general, and you start talking about clubs, they go to MLS and then immediately they think of youth clubs, right? So when we say there's 25,000 clubs in Germany, these are, these are, predominantly men's teams um, with a first team. Um, those clubs make up 157,000 teams, right? We're not talking about youth teams there. We're, we're talking about um, men's teams, right? 
Uh, and I think they go down 12 divisions in, in play. Now, not everybody there is getting a, a, a pro contract, but there's seven levels of, of pro contracts in, uh, you know, in, in, that, in that league alone. England has 40,000 clubs, right? So, you know, what I, what I saw right away was, hey, if you want exposure and you want to be a professional soccer player, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to sign for Chelsea. It may mean that you're signing for a fourth division team in, um, in the Erstevice in, in, in Holland, right? Or, you know, someplace in Spain. Um, and you get your looks that way and maybe and you can progress through. Um, people quote the lack of chance of, of being a professional soccer player. And it's, it's like some minuscule uh, percentage, less than 1%, 1%, right? But that's based on making one of those 75 teams in the U.S. Chances of, of, of actually getting a, uh, you know, or, or getting a look by a professional team or, or playing in a, in a lower division in Europe is actually much, much higher. Um, so we looked at that way as, as uh, you know, that this is, this is your funnel, right? There's, there's a much bigger funnel outside of the United States than there is um, in the United States. And then, you know, it complements uh, college too, because, you know, if you look at uh, the number of D1 and D2 programs, um, you know, and I think when parents and kids talk about playing in college, they're generally talking about trying to get a scholarship. You know, D1 programs, there's only 205 uh, men's, men's teams, D1, uh, and they only offer nine scholarships, right, uh, per team with a roster of like 30 guys, right? Um, and it's published 16 to 20% of those rosters are, are coming from foreign nationals. And, you know, you know my, my guess is the majority of the money is going to a foreign national coming in and playing, uh, you know, rather than, you know, the, the, the high school recruit, right? So um, the, the pathways were somewhat complementary. So what, what we did is, you know, with that time and our focus on tournaments, you know, we said, you know what, let's not take our Thanksgiving break and go to Disney and spend, you know, $3,000 per player to go to Disney, uh, play in, uh, you know, a tournament that you'll get uh, two touches uh, or two minutes of, of touches on the ball throughout the tournament, and maybe a college coach will see you. Let's take that, that time and go get uh, scouted in Europe. Um, and, and have um, some real pathways there. So Thanksgiving break and spring break, um, we open up uh, opportunities for the boys to, uh, to travel to Europe, um, showcase with clubs, um, and, uh, and take that opportunity uh, there. Nine of my boys are right now at Holland Fut uh, Football University um, in Enschede. Uh, and... Um, you know, training, training there right now. Uh, and I, I just think that's much more valuable to their development as players and their opportunities. They're, each one of them is building basically a resume that they can take to, um, you know, a college soccer coach and say, here's what I'm doing. And I think it's just much more powerful than saying, you know, I went to X showcase and I played on, um, you know, Y varsity team. Yeah, I I definitely agree. Um, when when you look at um, 
your program, you mentioned early on in, in this conversation about how you, you're trying not to put the burden on the families to pay for the program. So how are you paying for the program to offer this level of coaching, level of experience, the the, the opportunities for the trips, training, futsal, etc.? How are you funding um, you know, your program to be able to at least uh, lessen the burden on on the families from a financial perspective. Yeah, it, it's another it, it's it's another thing that we're really trying to attack. It's the pay to play model um, that it's very per- pervasive in U.S. youth soccer. Um, when the, most of these boys were at a were at a large club. Um, that uh, you know, and and this this focus started with with futsal, uh, Daniel, because you know I just saw it as, as such a great way to develop um, you know technical and tactical skills, and it's a five month period of time, uh, basically from November to March, that it becomes unplayable outdoors uh, here in in uh, in New York. So we had this five month period of time. And uh, the boys really enjoyed playing futsal. Um, you, you know, they, they were learning a great deal, uh, but their, the local club that they were with, you know, said, no, nah, we're not going to support a futsal program, uh, a team-based futsal program, because, um, you know, they gave a bunch of reasons. Uh, the reality was that the, the reasons turned out to be, well, it conflicts with the pay clinics and training programs that we want to run when the boys aren't playing for our soccer teams. Right. So, you know, instead of having a team and being able to charge a certain amount of money for the team to put, put together, you know, they wanted to run open clinics and charge, you know, whatever, a hundred, hundred dollars for five sessions or whatever. So, you know, over five months, that's a, that's a lot of money for, for um, you know, for a program. And it's a lot of money coming out of, out of parents' pockets, right? So, you know, I just, I just didn't like the, the hypocrisy of it. And, uh, and one, I wanted to be able to focus on the right programming. And two, I didn't think that it should just fall on the, on the backs of the parents, right? So coaching facilities, you know, all leagues, tournaments, all these things cost money. Not saying that they should be free. Um, I'm just saying that they shouldn't be put on the backs of the parents to to pay for them. So you have to find a you have to find a way to to um, to still pay for these services. Otherwise, you don't have good programming. So what what we've done is uh, is basically come up with a a way to gather sponsorships. Um, and those sponsorships uh, pay directly uh, for for the programming. So it's 100% free for the individual player or parent. Uniform costs, tournaments, you know, you know, registration with their, um, you know, with with the club. All of that is is paid for, um, but it's not paid for by the by the parent directly. It's paid through uh, through the. Um, the sponsorship uh, programs that we have in place. Uh, you know, I, y- your members can reach out to me directly to find out a little bit more about what we do. But I, I think the key uh, for a sponsorship program is to provide value to the sponsor. Um, and a, a sponsor does not get value, um, f- for example, by 
putting a logo on a jersey of 40 players, right? Two programs, about 20 each. Um, there's no value in just providing a logo. I can't, I can't advertise enough on behalf of that sponsor to create value. So we, we've created values in, in some other unique ways, which is basically uh, putting together uh, marketing events um, that, uh, that they can attend. Um, where we're driving attendance from the for, for the for the um, consumers that they want to uh, do business with um, at those marketing events. So so basically, a big part of my program is actually uh, you know marketing and events coordination um, that provides value to my sponsors, and the sponsors uh, get to. Uh, you know, take some of the money that they would have spent on a marketing program uh, and, you know, provide it to a, uh, a charitable organization um, and get value for that uh, donation. Well, I, you know, I love the, the out of the box thinking, the creativity, the innovation. Um, I remember our first conversations we, in, in Holland, we were, we were having, you know, had to do with, with, you know, how do we, how do we do something different? <laughs> you know, we don't like the way things are. And, uh, and, and, and I've been, uh, you know, watching from afar, the work that you guys have been putting in over the last few years and building this program. And, and you recently made an announcement that you have uh, established a partnership with a um, school academy type program in Spain. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that partnership and, and what does that bring as a, as another uh, aspect uh, to your program in, in New York? Yeah. So we were, we were going on, on trips, as I said, uh, spring, fall, uh, getting the boys exposure to, to clubs. Um, but I still didn't have a, you know, a real pathway to say, okay, well, if a, you know, if a amateur club or a second division club is interested in, in a player, how do we actually make that come to fruition? Um, you know, and as you know, Daniel, we, we were over there, um, you know, looking for those types of opportunities and the, and the problem becomes, okay, visas and, you know, relocating family and, and, you know, homeschooling and, you know, how, how are you going to make all this work uh, to give, give uh, the, the player an opportunity, right? Uh, Cause they can't sign a professional contract until they're, you know, 18. Uh, and if you wait until you're 18 to go try, it's just too late. You know, the, the gap, the gap is too great between a developing player going through high school here and trying to keep up with, um, you know, with programming that's 11 months at a very high level in, in Europe. And so that gap from 13 to 18 uh, is, is really what makes the, the difference in our players here versus there. So um, I, you know, I, I continuously been looking for, you know, a real pathway and, um, FC Malaga City uh, is um, a program that, uh, that that I found. Um, they're on uh, the southern coast of Spain, right on the uh, Mediterranean, uh, and they run an academy uh, where the boys uh, don't actually play in, um, you know, a La Liga league, um, but because they're not. Uh, in La Liga League, it allows them to put together some pretty high-level friendly matches uh, with, um, 
you know, with the clubs over there. So last year they, the academy team played uh, Real Madrid, played Barcelona, um, played Betis, um, played, um, uh, you know, Ma- Ma- um, Malaga, right? So uh, these are, you know, Division I uh, teams in La Liga. And, uh, you know, boys are getting the chance to play and as you play, get scouted uh, by those teams. Conversely, you can't break into... As, as an American player, you can't break into, you, you know, the Barcelona, uh, U16 team, uh, and, and, and make it. It's, it, it, you would, yeah, it's basically impossible, right? So if you, if you, if you look up, uh, you know, how, how to do it. Um, and then if you, if you do, uh, you're pretty much ostracized by your, um, uh, by your teammates because, you know, you're, you're not from there. Right. So, um, this, this club, what this club has done, and you can, you can look them up online for, for more information directly FC Malika city. Um, they've allowed players to compete and train, um, and, and play against the, you know, some of the best clubs in the world and get that exposure, um, uh, you know, directly. So, um, what what uh, what we're doing is now in our spring and fall uh, periods where the boys are off from school, they can go over and trial with uh, with Malaga City, um, and uh, you know then then you know hopefully be offered a spot to play you know in the next year. Their their season basically goes August uh, through May. Uh, combined with the academy, there's um, there's a school. Uh, that uh, uh, has been incorporated. So the boys actually uh, go to a an American school um, and are taught by a, a, a teacher there that's um, that's actually at the academy. Um, it's NCAA compliant uh, schooling. Uh, they have a special emphasis on SAT preparation. There's honors and AP classes offered. Um, you know, but the process of going to school is put into, you know, around, you know, being at the at the academy full time. Right. So the boys get up in the morning and they're training um, and then they take some time out for for schooling. Uh, and then they're doing another session of, of training or, or um, uh, gym work in the afternoon. Um, and uh, that that's the program. So, you know. Basically, I saw an opportunity to work with that program and get get my boys exposed to it. And I see that as, you know, a real pathway to come into, you know, playing in, in Europe. So uh, a couple of questions about the, the program specifically. Um, is that a program that is covered cost wise by your club? And if if not, uh, what kind of financial um burden is a is a family looking at with that and then secondly um does that program provide any kind of of pathway um to you know gaining any type of citizenship with spain uh at the conclusion of that program when they turn 18 so can you answer uh, both of those questions yeah, sure. So the the way that it uh, it works is the the boys are enrolled in um, a Spanish language uh, class. So 
you know, they get fully immersed into the Spanish language. Uh, and so the, they're on a visa to be, you know, Spanish uh, student visa. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and so that's how they're, that's how they're there for, you know, the 10 months of time that they're, that they're there, they're studying, um, Spanish and having visited there, it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, there's, there's kids from Australia, there's kids from, uh, you know, other parts of Europe, there's kids from the UK and there's American kids there. Um, and they're speaking fluent Spanish, um, interacting with the coaches, interacting with, uh, the, you know, the staff at, uh, the facility where they sleep and stay, uh, the restaurants, um, you can really see that, uh, that immersion in the Spanish culture and the Spanish language, right? So that's, that's the first part of it. Um, the cost of the, of the program also includes their, uh, all of their room and board, um, all of their training, all of their transportation and transfers, right? So, this team is playing in, you know, in and around uh, Spain, but also uh, going to, they have trips planned this year to the UK um, and to Holland uh, to play as well. And those, those costs are included for the, for the player. Um, and then separately is uh, the cost for the American school, right? Because not everybody's uh, in, in an American player. So they're, they're, they're not uh, in, involved with that American school you know, extra cost. Um, Malaga City publishes their um, their their fees, uh, so you can go onto their website and 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 look. But you know, basically, I think it comes down to like, um, you know, again, don't quote me on this, uh, Daniel, because you want to look on their, on their website. But it's about a thousand euros a month uh, for a ten month program, and if you think about like all of those costs going into it, r- room, board. Um, you know, the, the Spanish language school, uh, all your training, all your transportation. Um, it's, uh, it's a pretty good deal. Yeah, I, I definitely think it's a, it's a good deal. Uh, you can get rid of your kids for a thousand euros a month. Um, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> man, that, I mean, look, you, you're, you're talking about, uh, you know, 30 days in a month, uh, babysitting fees. I mean, you know, that's, that's a pretty good deal. Uh, and they get to do soccer <laughs> at the same time. Uh, I need to talk to my wife about that. Uh, so, uh, but no, I, look, I love the work that you're doing and, and the program that you, you keep, uh, building and and uh and, and and providing for your community for for those boys and opportunities to get them uh to to dream beyond um you know the the area where you are but also looking at at here's global education here's global pathways there 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 are other uh ways um that you can learn the game and experience the game and and and, and you're going to be a better player for experiencing uh that around the world i know that that in my own uh family that's been one of our uh pursuits as well is is to to think beyond um you know your local context and realize there's a big big world out there and um 
and and you should go and experience it. So how can people stay in touch with you and follow your program or get in touch with you to get more information about what you're doing and and maybe learn some things that they could uh, you know implement with, with their own program in other parts of the country? Sure. We're on Facebook, uh, BSC Wolves. Um, we're on uh, Twitter. We're on Instagram, all, all the same, BSC Wolves. Um, people, feel free to email me uh, directly, beekmanwolves at gmail.com. Um, you know, and I, and I want to echo what you're, what you're saying, Daniel, is, is uh, this is bigger than, you know, professional dreams or college dreams, right? And Soccer basically is is a language it's, itself, um, similar to to music, right? You, you you can relate to people even if you don't speak the same language uh, through 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 music or or soccer. And um, you know, I I think that uh, the program that we're putting in place is about educating uh, the players on the diverse cultures that come together through the sport. Uh, and it's been it's been wonderful to see to take kids out of a rural area um, and uh, in, in in New York and expose them to Holland, to Spain, to the UK, um, and um, and just different visions of the of, of the sport. So, thank you very much for for the time, Daniel. I very very much appreciate it. Well, look, we appreciate you coming on the show and uh, and and talking about your program, and uh, I I hope that uh, clubs and coaches around the country um, pick up on some of the the principles that you were talking about and the the ideas that you were sharing. I, I think they could definitely help um, on a macro level uh, the youth soccer uh, in experience and environment here in the u.s so thanks for coming on and, and sharing your your thoughts and um ideas and and what you're doing with your program uh, we we really do appreciate it no problem anytime thank you that is colin mccomb he is a program director for beekman wolves i really do appreciate him coming on the show spending some time with us our sponsor this half hour is charity water to learn more about charity water you can Go to charitywater.org. They are changing lives, changing villages by providing clean drinking water to people all over the world. And you can be a part of that story by going to charitywater.org. We'll be right back after this. No one, no man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. Bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them. It changes everything. You could know that you'd made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the lives of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens.
Welcome back to the show. Thanks for uh, tuning in this Monday, July the 8th. Uh, U.S. Women's National Team winning the World Cup yesterday. Fantastic. Four stars. Pay them U.S. soccer. Treat them right. I'd like to thank... Um, I'd like to thank Colin McComb and and the, the program with Beekman Wolves is is thinking outside of the box and uh, using innovation technology. You should really uh, reach out to them and, and see what they're doing different uh, different than your normal soccer experience. And um, you know, look, the Gold Cup was last night. Uh, Copa America was yesterday. I predicted a three one Mexico win. They won 1-0. Wasn't a great game either way. Um, neither team executed all that well. Uh, but look, the U.S. is on, on the men's side. It's just not very good. And, um, you know, doesn't seem to be that the players nor Burhalter are figuring this thing out. Uh, I'm not seeing anything that, that is encouraging um, in the way that they're playing. And, uh, you know, so I don't know. Maybe things will change. Who knows? Um, but, uh, yeah, so another loss, um, another failure for the U.S. men's national team. Mexico winning 1-0 in Soldier Field in Chicago, right uh, footsteps away from Soccer House, U.S. Soccer House. And, um, you know, maybe one day we'll take it serious and, and try to get it fixed. Copa America, Brazil winning 3-1, even with 10 men against Peru and uh, came out champions. Um, You know, that that tournament is on a different level than than the Gold Cup. And if you missed the the opportunity to watch that tournament over the last few weeks, um, you you, you missed a good one. Uh, It was some high-level play and, and some incredible players that are from South America. Um, that play all over Europe throughout the, the, the domestic calendar and uh, go home to play for these national teams. It was incredible. So um, do yourself a favor, watch them in the future because uh, it's definitely something worth uh, watching. Um, and uh, yeah, so thanks for tuning in. We'll see everybody again tomorrow, same time, 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.